Hey, it's good to see you this morning. How are you? You guys have been incredibly gracious to us. Thank you for all the kind words that you've said about not only the conference and the speakers, but the presentation on uh, Sunday night. That's all back there. It's on DVD and Blu-ray, so uh, help yourself to it. Be sure and check out the museum. We'll probably be wrapping it up today, so it won't be available tomorrow morning. So if you want to see the museum, hold some of the guns, get your pictures made, you need to do that today. I also want to remind you that um, among the many speakers that we've had, and I can't speak for all of the speakers, but I can definitely speak for Paul and myself, we co-pastors, so it makes it possible for us to be able to go and speak and do other things while the other one covers uh, for um, the, the pulpit at Fairview. And so if you are interested in having the Black Regiment presentation in your church or in your area, or, of course, if you, if you want Paul to come and kind of destroy your church, then just invite, uh, invite us and we'll, uh, we'll do the best that we can. Maybe you'll have Paul first and then have me to come and try to build things back up. I, I don't know how you want to do it, but... <laughs> anyway, we're available and uh, we want to we help you. I wanted to speak behind this today because I don't like getting behind a, a cockpit and hiding. I like to get out here amongst you. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. Hey, I don't know how many of you have watched the news closely this morning, but the, the latest news is that Hillary has decided to, uh, to run again. Uh, I, I didn't know if you, if you heard that this morning. They're already working uh, on the... Uh, on the artwork, and just as soon as I, I get it to come up, she'll be running for 2028, 20, and I just, I just wanted you to know. Um, the other thing about uh, politics and all is the way that they can do things with makeup, and uh, here is uh, what you can do with makeup if you, uh, if you have a good enough makeup artist working on, on staff. For you, and then uh, most of you have kept up with AOC, of course, and she's claiming to be the new face of the Democrat Party, which I found looks a whole lot like the old face. So, just uh, thought bring some current events up to you in case you hadn't seen some of this. <laughs> oh man, got a laugh in the morning, don't you? Yeah, a lot of times I have to laugh to keep from crying. So anyhow, Paul is a good friend. It's an honor to co-pastor with him. And I just uh, thank him so much for uh, all that he does and his friendship. And uh, buddy, I love you and I appreciate uh, all that's happened here this week. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and not only to get to do the black robe story, but to also talk to you about something that I think is very important. It's one thing to talk about the, the philosophy of ministry, the philosophy of politics, the, the kind of 30,000 foot level. But I think it's also very important that we get down to the basics and the nuts and bolts. And so what I want to do this morning is to try to deal with one little bolt or one little nut of how we can practically begin to alter, if we need to, our ministry, our positions, our preaching, you realize that we have about 60 days and it's triage time. It is time to kind of not do business as usual. Uh, I think that time actually passed a long time ago, but we have a very short window of opportunity now. We're going to be talking about some things tomorrow morning that we would suggest as your first steps when you get back to your churches. And I believe that it's easily understood like this. The first thing we have to do as leaders is we have to educate ourselves. We have to know the material. 
Some of us don't know the material. I admitted to you that just 10 years ago, I didn't know anything about the Black Robe Regiment. I know quite a bit about them now, but I didn't 10 years ago. There are many things that I need to continue to educate myself on. Maybe you've heard some things here already that you say, hey, wow, I, I need to, to alter the way I preach or teach. Or, and I'm not talking about the gospel. You understand, but we need to educate ourselves. The second thing we need to do is educate our congregations. Guys, I'm telling you, I get the opportunity to travel around the country, and generally speaking, our congregations do not understand most of the stuff that you have heard today. And I think without uh, any kind of criticism to you personally, our churches don't understand because we're not teaching and preaching this in our pulpits. We've gotten the idea that that's not spiritual. Well, what is if this isn't, right? Okay, and then the third thing that we have to do is once we've educated our people, we've got to mobilize them. We've got to put them out there as an army. I was talking to General Jerry Boykin one day, and I said, General Boykin, the Christian army is, is far large enough to do the job. He said, yes, Dan, but they don't have any commanders to lead it. And I want you to think about that. Don't have any commanders to lead it. Now, this is a subject that I uh, uh, really felt compelled to deal with, and I've just written a book on it. It's back there at the book table. All of the material that I'm going to be sharing this morning is, is in the book and kind of elaborated on. But how many times have you heard somebody say, you are a Christian and it is your duty under God to submit to government no matter what and you're sinning if you don't? Or how many times have you had uh, someone say to you, John MacArthur used to uh, proclaim this boldly, our founders and framers were sinning when they defied England, eventually formed what we know today as the United States of America. Or what about this one? Well, since Jesus and Paul and the other apostles did not get involved in their government or call upon their followers to rebel against the tyranny of their day, all Christians should stay out of politics, submit to whatever government they find themselves living under. Guys, I've heard all of those all of my life and all of my ministry. And I've even had people come up to me to rebuke me by using one of these lines on me for doing things like running for office and serving in the legislature while being a pastor and even dealing with the Black Robe Regiment or challenging the Johnson Amendment. All of these things um, have prompted sometimes people to use these very lines on me. Now, as I said, uh, John MacArthur has been a, a strong proponent in just kind of knuckling under for years. In fact, he's rebuked Christians and preachers who didn't. Now, I have the greatest respect for, for Dr. MacArthur, and I quote from him regularly. So it's not like I consider him an enemy at all. But there are some areas in which I've disagreed with him, and this has always been one of them. But notice what has happened now. Now that they've attempted to shut his church down, it's time to speak out. So I praise God that it was John MacArthur upon which the hammer fell to be the spokesman for standing up against tyranny because there is no one that has a more bulldog grip on an issue once he gets it. And there's no one more articulate and able to deal with the press than John MacArthur. So thank God that he's no longer saying what he's been saying for all these years. Now, having said that, I think it's important to know what preachers preach during our birthing. And I'm talking about in the 18th century. Here's Jonathan Mayhew, 1749. No government is to be submitted to at the expense of that, which is the sole end of all government, the common good and safety of society. Here's Pastor Samuel West, May the 29th, 1776. A slavish submission to tyranny is a proof of a very sordid and base mind. Here's Pastor Joseph Lathrop, December the 14th, 1787, long after the war is over. Is there no case in which people may resist government? Yes, 
There is one such case, and that is when rulers usurp a power oppressive to the people. Now, at the very end of this uh, presentation, I'm going to be sharing with you some excerpts from some of these sermons that you hear from these pastors themselves. Now, we're all familiar with passages of Scripture that tell us, for instance, in Titus, to be subject to rulers, authorities. Uh, Peter tells us, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. We're all familiar with those passages. And just read by themselves, they would tend to lead me to believe that we just don't have a recourse. And then, of course, you're familiar with what Paul told Timothy... That in the process of submitting to and praying for our leaders, he says, it helps us to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So if you just took those verses by themselves, which is a very poor kind of uh, exegesis or hermeneutics, you would tend to believe, well, we just don't, we don't have an option. We, We have to submit. Is that what the Bible teaches in other places? Well, obviously, the answer to that is no. There are many examples in Scripture where God's people stood up and said no to tyranny. So, have believers always practiced unlimited submission to governmental authority? And of course, the answer to that is no. A thousand times no. Not only that, but when these believers stood up, God actually applauded and blessed them for their stand against governmental authority. Here's some examples just to remind you. What about the Hebrew midwives that refused to do what Pharaoh told them to do and drown all those Jewish baby boys? What about Moses standing up against Pharaoh? What about Queen Esther going in to the king uninvited at the penalty of death? What about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three asbestos boys? They wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn. What about them? Uh, what, What about Daniel? No, I'm going to pray. By the way, Daniel's restriction placed upon him was just for a few days, just for about 30 days. I mean, can't you just not pray for 30 days? Can't you wear this mask for just, you know, 30 days, something like that? Uh, What about Jesus refusing to abide by all the Jewish Sabbath laws? Uh, What about the apostles refusing to stop preaching? What about believers through all of the ages that the book of Hebrews doesn't even name? It just says there are many more we could talk about, but there's so many, we'll just lump them together. What about all of those believers? And yet they find themselves in God's hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. What about those Americans who stood at Lexington facing down British tyranny? What about those framers who signed a declaration of independence, the birth certificate of our republic? Were they really sinning when they did that? What about states like Wisconsin that refused to submit to the Fugitive Slave Act and would actually allow slaves that made it to Wisconsin to go free? Were they sinning in doing that? Well, we all know the answers to those questions. What about Corey Ten Boom and her family who weren't even Jewish, they were Dutch? who put their lives on the line to save Jews from the clutches of the Nazis and all of her family but her were killed in the process. What about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran preacher in Germany, who actually not only resisted Hitler, but participated in attempts to have him assassinated. was eventually captured, of course, as you know, and hanged about two weeks before the Allied forces liberated the the concentration camp where he was. Uh, What about Oskar Schindler? Schindler's List. What about him? He's defying governmental authority. Uh, We we don't condemn him. Uh, Come to uh, North America. What what about uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. 
and those who uh, resisted Jim Crow laws and the ridiculous segregation uh, sentiment and attitude in our government. We applaud these people. We have a holiday every year to honor uh, King and his followers. And, and most preachers who say that you shouldn't stand against government will, will applaud all of these people. And then turn right around and tell you, you have to submit. And if you don't, you're sinning. Now, guys, that's inconsistency, and I would even go as far as to say hypocrisy at the highest level. How is it that we can celebrate these people and then tell all of us, now, you can't do that? What? Is that really what the Bible says? Now, of course, some will say, well, doesn't Paul say in Romans 13 that it is our job? And, of course, most people focus on Romans 13, 1 through 5, and that's why I'm focusing on that in this presentation and the book. So let, let's take a look at Romans 13. Now, you know the passage as well as I do. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who risk will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister. Catch that phrase, God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister. He said it again, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Every one of us have read that passage of scripture. And once again, if that's the only passage we had in scripture that dealt with this subject, we would have to conclude, I think, well, we just have to knuckle under and pray for better days. But we've already seen that those are not the only passages that deal with standing up against tyranny. We just went through a litany of examples. Remember, and you know this, but remember context is everything. Knowing the context, whether it's grammatically or textually or historically of any passage of scripture is paramount in understanding the proper meaning. Hermeneutics, the science and the art of biblical interpretation is incredibly important. Now, you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand the basic rules of hermeneutics. And yet I find that many preachers do not practice proper hermeneutics. We pull passages out of context. We don't do it on purpose. But we, we preach things that really that passage isn't saying. We apply passages to people that it really wasn't written to. Whenever I quote 2 Chronicles 7.14, I'm always real quick to say, now, you understand, this was written to Israel. This was not written to America. But there are some principles that transcend. See, we need to be very careful how we handle God's Word. Paul tells us, uh, study so we can skillfully handle God's Word. So, what about the context of Romans 13? Well, first of all, Paul wrote Romans somewhere between 56 and 57 AD. You say, well, okay, that's great. Why is that so important? Well, we have to understand that uh, a few years before that, somewhere between 49 and 52, the emperor Claudius had exported or deported a lot of Christians and Jews out of Rome because they were becoming a problem for him and he didn't want to have to deal with them, so he simply deported them and got rid of them. No, no doubt Paul, of course, knew this. Aquila and Priscilla were probably in that deportation and had visited with Paul about why Claudius had probably expelled them. It's also important to remember that Nero's close advisor, Seneca, was still advising Nero when Paul wrote Romans. And Nero would not become the monster that we know him as until about 64 AD. Now you say, well, okay, that's a little bit of a history. Remember when Paul's writing Romans. 
He's writing Romans at least seven years before Nero shows his true colors. He is not persecuting Christians when Paul writes Romans. Not like we remember Nero. So it's very important because I've heard preachers say, well, Paul told him knuckle under Nero. He actually didn't. Not the Nero we think of. So I think it's very important to know the context when we're reading Romans 13. Now, of course, Peter basically said the same thing that Paul did in Romans 13. Now, here's the dilemma that's created. Peter says to submit to government. Paul says to submit to government. So then there's some unavoidable questions that come to my mind. Are Paul and Peter then teaching unlimited submission? And if they are, how do we reconcile what they write with the stories in the Old Testament of believers that not only resisted tyranny, but were applauded and honored by God for doing so? Isn't that a glaring contradiction? And then add to it our own history since then, how we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr., or how we celebrate every 4th of July. Isn't there this glaring inconsistency? And the answer is yes. And how have we lived with such dissonance for so long without finally dealing with it? Ironically, by refusing to remain silent about their own faith, Paul and Peter both were themselves often at odds with their government. And in fact, their defiance was so strident, it led to the martyrdom of both. So doesn't it seem a little bit fishy that Peter and Paul were saying unlimited submission except for us? And we're going to defy those who tell us we can't preach and live the way God told us to, to the point of being martyred. See, see how inconsistent this is? So then, if Romans 13.5 says that we're to submit to government, what kind of government? And interestingly enough, Paul defines for us the kind of government that is due the full submission of believers. Now, it's, the whole passage is important, and I break it all down in the little book that I have here, but verses 3 and 4 are critical. Notice that, that Paul tells us the kind of government that he's talking about. Now, what do you think God had in mind when he instituted human government, do you think he had a monarchy in mind? Do you think he had a just raw democracy? Was it a republic? Well, we can look at Israel's history and see what God suggested they do. When they cried for a monarch, he said, oh, you're going to regret that. But in the end, what God intended for government is that government would punish evildoers and reward doers of good. I mean, that's a simplistic understanding of government, but that's the reason government was instituted because we are fallen. Jeremiah tells us the human heart is, is desperately wicked, right? So God said, to live in a civil society, you're going to have to have some government. And as long as the government is benevolent, really any kind will work. So regardless of kind of government structure you have in your church, if it's benevolent and Christ-honoring, I'm not so sure God's all concerned about that. And I understand about plurality of elders and all that. But in the end, if it gets God's purpose accomplished and it's benevolent, I'm not so sure that God's going to wrap us over the beak if we get it a little bit wrong, as long as it does the right thing. So what kind of government... Does Paul say uh, deserves our unlimited submission? Well, number one, it acts as God's minister for good. That's right out of Romans 13. So how could you say that Kamala Harris uh, rules as God's minister for good? How could you say that Adolf Hitler ruled as God's minister for good? Well, that stretches credulity. 
There's no way that evil tyrants could be considered as God's ministers ministering for good. They are not ministering for good. If you look at Kamala Harris's voting record, she's the most liberal senator in the Senate. Let's just be honest. By the way, let me throw a little side point in. We Christians need to quit apologizing for supporting conservatives and President Trump. Stop apologizing for that. When when you start to tell people who to vote for, well, isn't the choice pretty obvious? How in the world can Christians support someone who would support all the stuff that Biden does, and of course, particularly the murder of the unborn? I mean, come on. So, acts as God's minister for good. Secondly, he says it's one that avenges evil by executing wrath. Notice he doesn't say a rap. He says wrath. There's one thing to wrap someone on the wrist. It's another thing to pour out wrath. And he says the job of government is to execute wrath. On evildoers. And then thirdly, a government that deserves our submission is one that awards and protects those who do good. Now then, what do you do if a government does the opposite? Well, here's a pastor from the 1720s. This is Jonathan Mayhew. Paul's trying to get his hair to grow like that. Discourse concerning unlimited submission and non-resistance. This is a sermon that he preached over a course of weeks, as you can see in January 49, 1749 to 1750. Now listen to some of these words because you need to hear them. Common tyrants and public oppressors are not entitled to obedience from their subjects by virtue of anything here laid down by the inspired apostle. He's referring to Romans 13. For a nation thus abused to arise unanimously and resist their prince, even to the dethroning him, is not criminal, he goes on to say, but a reasonable way of vindicating their liberties and just rights. It is making use of the means and the only means which God has put into their power for mutual and self-defense. It would be highly criminal in them not to make use of this means. It would be stupid tameness and unaccountable folly for whole nations to suffer one unreasonable, ambitious, and cruel man to wanton and riot in their misery. He says it's stupid. So what's the believer to do when the government does the opposite of the kind of government that Paul says we're supposed to have? What if the government rewards evildoers and punishes the doers of good? The exact opposite of the kind of government Paul is talking about. Well, we find a remedy. Paul tells us in his writings, kind of interestingly, the very chapter before he writes Romans 13, which would make it Romans, Romans, Romans 12. Very good. In Romans 12, the chapter before Romans 13, Paul says this, and you're very familiar with it. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He says that before he writes his famous Romans 13 controversial passage as far as we can see it. So there are other scriptures that call for submission. We've had this hinted at already in a previous presentation. Ephesians 5.22, Paul says, wives submit to their husbands. Ephesians 6.1, Paul tells the children submit to their parents. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3 and in 1 Timothy 5 that congregations should submit to their pastors or spiritual leaders. But isn't it interesting that all of the unlimited submission folks 
don't believe that unlimited submission applies in these three examples. They believe it applies to government. But they don't believe that a wife, if her husband says, take this 45 and go down to the convenience store and steal me a 12-pack, is obliged to do so. Or if the parents tell the children, kids, we're short on money this month, here's a sack of pot, go out on the streets and sell it, help the family out, would you? Or if a pastor is heretical or obnoxious, well, the congregation just got to tough it out. Sorry, got to submit. No one who preaches unlimited submission to government preaches unlimited submission in these examples. There's some more inconsistency. You see, one of the rules of hermeneutics, the analogy of faith, teaches that you can't just pull passages out and, and interpret them without keeping in mind what all the other passages teach. The Bible is holistic. Now, I've made this mistake, guys. I want, you to, I want you to know I'm standing here before you tell you there was a time when I didn't understand this passage of Scripture. And I've had to correct myself. So, when the laws of men bring us into conflict with God's higher law, we must defy the laws of men and obey God. You know that. Acts chapter 5. Peter said, we're going to have to obey God rather than men. Sorry. And unfortunately, though I would have never thought I would live to see it, we're almost there now. In fact, we're kind of there, aren't we? Now, is this, is this a call for vigilantism? Is this is a call for arrogant piety where I'm above the law? Of course not. Paul and Peter and all the others are clearly teaching that Christians should be known for their submissive spirit, their desire to get along with others, their humble hearts. This is not rebel without a cause teaching and preaching here. It doesn't mean that we have the right to just thumb our noses at authority if we disagree. It's one thing to disagree. It's another thing to be facing tyranny. Just because you disagree with a politician doesn't make them a tyrant. It may make them wrong, but it doesn't make, that make them a tyrant. So remember, there, there's, there's limits to this. So let's just run through our own history real quickly. You know, there are a couple of concessions that a lot of preachers are willing to make, though, in this argument. They'll say, well, you can resist if you're forbidden to preach the gospel. And then they'll make another concession. They'll say, well, or you can resist when uh, they're forcing you to sin. Okay, well, that all sounds good, and I think we'd all agree with that. If they tell us we can't preach the gospel, we're going to preach it anyway. And if they're forcing us to sin, we're going to refuse and say, I'm not going to do that. But tell me how that applies to all of the examples that we see in the Old Testament. Was Esther being told she couldn't preach her faith? No. Was she being forced to sin? No. She was interposing for her people. Was Moses being told that he couldn't practice his faith? Good grief, no. He'd already escaped and was doing so. For Even if you go to the Hebrew midwives, were they being told they couldn't practice their faith or preach the gospel? No. So these are straw men. We all agree with these two. But what happens when it goes outside of those? For instance, if you consider in our history a Supreme Court that says black people aren't people, they're property. Now, had we been living then, would we be duty-bound to submit to that? Well, I hope we would say today, no. But would we have done something about it? Because, see, it's not just enough to not submit. Are we going to react? And the answer is, for many of us, no. Now, the government was wrong. And eventually, of course, it caused a very brutal war to point that out and to try to correct it. What about if we'd been living in 1940s Germany? 
What would we have done as Christians? Would we have knuckled under? Well, it's the law, and Paul says you got to commit. Yeah, I got to submit. Would you have done what uh, Corey Ten Boom and her family did, or Oscar Schindler, or would you have just said, "Well, I'm not going to participate, but I'm not going to do anything"? See, that's the real question before us, and we can't hide behind a faulty understanding of Romans 13 and do nothing or knuckle under. And I'm fearful that that's what we've been doing for years. Supreme Court. Can't have prayer. Can't have Ten Commandments. You know all the awful decisions that they have made. We're going to redefine marriage. You've got to have health insurance. You know, they could use the same reasoning and tell you you have to drive a Prius. I mean, the same reasoning. They could just say, well, you're ruining the, uh, you know, atmosphere and the climate. And, and so that's harming people's health. And so we're just going to make it a tax. And everybody's got to go buy a Prius. And it's a tax. And we have the power to tax in the enumerated powers. Article 1, Section 8. It's all necessary and proper, you know. Is that what the framers meant? Of course not. So whenever we begin to practice this unlimited submission to the Supreme Court and, well, it's the law of the land. Well, first of all, it's not the law of the land. They're one of three branches. They've been wrong a lot. They're wrong now. We have the job to stand up and say no. What about in some of these decisions? Buck versus Bell, 1927. The court can decide who's worthy to reproduce, and if they decide you're not, they can sterilize you. Think that's a good decision? How about the Korematsu decision in 1944? If you have Japanese descent, even though you're an American and all that, well, we're going we're gonna to seize your stuff. We're going to put you in a, in a camp to keep you safe. And in the process, your family may be divided. You may lose your business. You may even lose your home. Sorry, it's constitutional. Of course, you, you know this decision all too well. We'll just define marriage to be whatever we want it to be. Well, sorry, marriage isn't your idea. You don't have the right to define it. Of course, what about this hallmark decision? See, where should we be? Should we just say, oh, well, that's the law of the land. And Paul says we have to submit. So there we are. That's not a baby. There's 17 weeks. That's not a baby. There's 20 weeks. That's not a baby. Doesn't look like a blob of tissue to me. Looks like a baby. You know the numbers. Over 62 million now and counting. In our very conservative state of Oklahoma, we only murder about 15 to 20 babies every business day. Because we're conservatives, we've only murdered a little over 200,000 since 1973. You see what I'm getting at? I'm afraid that a lot of Christians with a faulty understanding of Romans 13 have either stood by and done nothing or have participated because they believe that we have to knuckle under. Joseph Lathrop is one of the preachers that I uh, quoted from early in this presentation. I want to listen to what he says in 1787, the full context. Perhaps it will be asked, he said, is there no case in which a people may resist government? Yes, there is one such case, and that is when rulers usurp a power oppressive to the people and continue to support it by military force in contempt of every respectful remonstrance. In this case, the body of the people have a natural right to unite their strength for the restoration of their own constitutional government. Where's preaching like that today? This is a preacher preaching from a pulpit. Would you preach like that from your pulpit? Well, if you're following our finest traditions, you would. 
But if you've bought into the separation of church and state lie, if you've bought into the political correctness nonsense, if you've bought into the improper understanding of Romans 13, then you wouldn't dare touch a subject like that. Why, by by, uh, what I understand, I'd be violating the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment is unconstitutional. Quit worrying about your tax-free status. We'll hear more about that from Matt Staver, I believe, tomorrow. So, our government, we must understand, is very different from the one Paul lived under. And so it's, it's really even a stretch to try to compare the government he was telling those Romans to submit to, those Roman Christians, and our government. I mean, think about it. Think about the kind of government that we, we live under today. We have a very specific and unique set of representative principles that we live under. Of course, it's called federalism, and I don't have time to go into all of this, but you know, in our birth certificate, the Declaration of Independence, government gets its power from the people. They don't dole out rights to the people. Government is delegated, loaned certain authority because the people receive it first from God. That's a novel concept. It's something we've grown up with, but guys, most people in history have never lived in a place where they think like that. But in that document, listen to what they said you ought to do whenever that government starts to foul up. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right. Later on, Jefferson says, the duty of the people to alter or to abolish it. And then later on, he says, throw it off. Three levels of response. Alter means you haven't let it go so far that you can't fix it. So you just go in and fix it. You alter it. Well, you've let it go too far and it just can't be fixed. So you need to start with a clean slate. That's abolish. Or you've really let it go too far and now it's a tyranny and you're going to have to fight it and throw it off. Those are the three levels that Jefferson is talking about. What level were they doing at that time? This one right here. They were throwing it off. They were fighting a tyranny. Now, this is right here in our birth certificate. And we have the duty and the right in America. Now, that's not true for the people living in Rome in the first century. They lived under a dictatorship. There was little, if anything, they could do about the form of governance they had. But, friends, we don't live under a dictatorship yet. And it is our job to fulfill the obligations of our government. And if the government is of, by, and for the people, then the people are sinning if they don't fulfill their civic responsibility. And the civic responsibility is more than voting. It's getting engaged. It's educating. And where can you better educate than from the pulpit? When Abraham Lincoln was campaigning, they were telling him, you can't talk about slavery here. And then he'd go over there. And they said, well, you can't talk about slavery there. And I'm going to paraphrase. He said, well, I'm told that I can't talk about slavery in political circles because that's bringing religion into politics. And then I'm told in religious circles I can't talk about slavery because that's bringing politics and religion. So pray tell, where can I talk about this subject? Friends, your people want to know a biblical perspective on governance and a republic And our history, I'm teaching right now in my pastor's class on Sunday mornings where we have anywhere from 125 to 150 people just in my class. I'm teaching on the Christian influence of the Constitution, the Christian influence of our birth certificate, and all of the principles using a biblical backdrop. That's what we all ought to be doing. And our people then wouldn't be so ignorant. Now the author of the Constitution, here's what he gave as the remedy. He said, if the government goes haywire, the states, who are parties there too, are duty-bound to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil. 
When the government goes haywire, Madison said it's evil. Jefferson, who is the author of the Declaration, these two I chose because they are the authors, he says whenever a general government, that be federal, assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. Do your people know that? You say, well, they've got access to these documents. Yes, they have access to the Bible, so why don't you quit preaching? It is your job as a man of God to stand before your people and preach the whole counsel of God, which would include governance, because God invented it. And if we don't, friends, we're going to get some really sorry governance here pretty quick. But if we stand against the government, doesn't that make us rebels? In fact, John MacArthur used to say that our founders and framers were sinning when they did what they did. Well, what does he mean? Does he mean that when the uh, separatists that we call the pilgrims jumped on board that speedwell ship that wasn't so speedy and so well, and they had to turn around and go back and get a different ship because it leaked? Were they sinning when they got to the New World and they wrote their Mayflower Compact, probably the first governmental, official governmental document written in North America? They declared that they were there for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. That makes them missionaries, doesn't it? Do your people know that? Have you preached that to them? For many of us, the answer is no, because that's politics. I can't preach politics in my pulpit. Alice Baldwin, a PhD at Duke, said probably, by the way, you need her book. It's out of print, but you can buy it on Amazon. Probably the most fundamental principle of the American revolution, excuse me, American constitutional system is the principle that no one is bound to obey an unconstitutional act. No single idea was more fully stressed, no principle more often repeated through the first 60 years of the 18th century than that governments must obey law and that he who resisted one in authority who was violating that law was not himself a rebel but a protector of the law. That was the thinking in our day. Here's a preacher, Samuel Cooper. By the way, I have one of his election sermons back there. He preached during the French and Indian War. You need to take a look at it. Listen to what he said. His church was called the Church of the Patriots. Benjamin Franklin was his pen pal. I'm not kidding. Listen to, what, listen to what he said. We are not exciting rebellion, opposition, nay, open, avowed resistance by arms against usurpation and lawless violence. It is not rebellion by the law of God or the land. Resistance to lawful authority makes rebellion. You probably know this, but Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams were asked to design the first national seal. It wasn't adopted, unfortunately, but on August the 20th, 1776, this was their suggestion. This was going to be our national seal. Now, right here in the middle, you've got Pharaoh and his army drowning. You've got Moses there. You've got the pillar of fire and cloud. This is God right here above them. And then around the perimeter, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Tell me they believed in unlimited submission. It's ridiculous. Eliza Goodrich, pastor of a congregational church in Connecticut in 1787 said this, when a constitutional government is converted into tyranny and the laws, rights, and properties of a free people are openly invaded, there ought not to be the least doubt but that a remedy is provided in the laws of God and reason for their preservation, nor ought resistance in such a case to be called rebellion. But guys, we no longer preach like that. We don't think that's legal. Let me tell you, I've endorsed candidates from my pulpit. I've had candidates in the pulpit and had them to share on a Sunday morning and then had them set up all their campaign materials at the back of the church and say, I'm voting for this guy and I want you to know if you're right with God, you'll vote for him too. Go back there and get the stuff, put it in your yard. I'm telling you, that's the kind of boldness that we're going to have to have. And I'm not trying to say I'm the example, but I'm telling you, you're not going to get in trouble. But I'm 
certainly concerned that I might be in trouble when I stand before God if I don't. And I care about this land and my children and my grandchildren. So American preachers did not always preach unlimited submission. In the last few moments, I want to read to you examples from two sermons. And then I want to tell you an incredible story and then I'll be done. I mentioned Jonathan Mayhew a while ago. In fact, I think I gave a little quote from this sermon. But I want you to listen to this this excerpt. By the way, many of these are in my black robe book back there. So if you're interested, they are there. No government, he says, is to be submitted to at the expense of that which is the sole end of all government. What is that? Well, the common good and safety of society. Where do you get that? Romans 13. He says the only reason of the institution of civil government and the only rational ground of submission to it is the common safety and utility. It would be irrational, he says, to submit to any other kind of government. If, therefore, in any case, the common safety and utility would not be promoted by submission to government, but the contrary, there is no ground or motive for obedience and submission, but for the contrary. But the duty of the unlimited obedience, he says, whether active or passive, can be argued neither from the manner of expression here used, by the way, he's referring to Romans 13, nor from the general scope and design of the passage. When once magistrates act contrary to their office and the end of their institution, when they rob and ruin the public, instead of being guardians of its peace and welfare, they immediately cease to be the ordinance and ministers of God and no more deserve that glorious character than common pirates and highwaymen. Where are preachers like that today? That's a preacher. Samuel West delivered this sermon on, in, in May of 1776 to the legislature of, of uh, Massachusetts. He said, a slavish submission to tyranny is a proof of a very sordid and base mind. In other words, he's saying, you're idiots. All good magistrates, while they faithfully discharge the trust reposed in them, ought to be righteously and conscientiously obeyed. He says, look, when they're doing the right thing, we need to submit. The reason why the magistrate is called the minister of God is because he is to protect, encourage, honor them that do well and to punish them who do evil. See, we've already said that. Therefore, it is our duty to submit to them, not merely, he says, for fear of being punished by them, but out of regard to the divine authority under which they are deputed to execute judgment and to do justice. If magistrates are no farther ministers of God than they promote the good of the community, then obedience to them neither is nor can be unlimited. For it would imply a gross absurdity to assert that when magistrates are ordained by the people solely for the purpose of being beneficial to the state, they must be obeyed when they are seeking to ruin and destroy it. Unlimited submission and obedience is due to none but God alone. Whenever then the ruler encourages them that do evil and is a terror to those that do well, As soon as he becomes a tyrant, notice what is the definition of tyrant to this preacher, Samuel West, when he does the opposite of what Paul said, Romans 13, ministers are supposed to do. He forfeits his authority to govern and becomes the minister of Satan. He's the devil right there on the spot. And as such ought to be opposed, not just ignored, opposed. Now do you understand why those preachers of that day had no reticence at all, no hesitation to recruit the men from their churches and their communities and lead them off to fight for liberty? This was the understanding when our country was birthed. Now, 
There are no good portraits of him that I can find as of yet. But this is Samuel Phillips Payson. You say, well, who is that? Well, he was a preacher in a little place called Chelsea, Massachusetts. Today, it's swallowed up by Boston. He was a strong preacher, but he was against breaking away from Great Britain, and he was certainly against a war. He said, I'm just against it. And he wouldn't side with the black robe preachers until the British fired on the Lexington citizens. And I want to read to you a man who would be the closest thing in that time to a historian, a man by the name of Joel Headley. I want to read from a book that he wrote about the chaplains and the clergy of the revolution about what Samuel Phillips Payson did the afternoon of April the 19th once the British had fired on the Lexington men that morning. And I quote, The brutal outrage at Lexington transformed this peaceful scholar and meek divine into the fiery intrepid soldier. And seizing a musket, he put himself at the head of a party and led them forward to the attack. The gentle voice that had so long spoken only words of peace suddenly rung like that of a prophet of old. A body of British soldiers advancing along the road, by the way, that's Battle Road that we talked about in the, in the presentation on Sunday night, from Concord back to Boston. He poured into them such a destructive volley, that means musket balls, that the whole were slain or taken prisoner. Now, he didn't do it all himself. It's this party that he led, probably men from his church and the community. He was a man of peace and conciliation, but the first citizen's blood that crimsoned the green sward made a clean sweep of all his arguments and objections, and he entered with his whole soul into the struggle. Now, there's a pastor who said, no separation, no fighting, but as soon as he heard about Lexington, he grabbed his musket, grabbed his neighbors, set out for the road that led from Concord back to Boston and was part of the ambush of the Redcoats and shot as many of them as he could. Now, am I calling on you and me to go get our muskets and start shooting governmental authorities? No, of course not. But what I am telling us is that we must have a proper understanding of Romans 13 and teach it to our people. Now, because they've heard the other for so long, they might not know how to react. And so you're going to have to understand that. You can't just go in and give them both barrels on one Sunday, right? But guys, we must understand Romans 13 and we must preach it properly. So, based upon our government, our heritage, we Christians not only can stand against evil laws and decrees from our government, we are obligated by our faith and our founding documents to do so. We are obligated. God, give us the courage to accept the truth, to preach it and teach it, and then to live by it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for allowing me to share.